So I'm going to teach today out of Matthew, um, the 13th chapter of Matthew. And in this chapter, you may have headings in your Bible, but these are the great parables of the kingdom. And if you're really in the book of Matthew, it can be divided in many sections, but one of the things we, we remember Matthew for is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, starting with the Beatitudes and one of the greatest passages of preaching in the Bible. And it's Jesus teaching his followers and all those who are listening, and that's important, we'll, we'll talk about that, how to live in the kingdom, what it means to be in the kingdom, and how to live. It's instructions for those in the kingdom. So what, before we, we read, we need to define the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? The thing about the kingdom of God is, Matthew in particular, is the gospel that is aimed for everyone, but it is written from a Jew towards the Jews who were looking for the Messiah to come and establish the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Messiah, the Christ, which are all the same thing. And they were looking for that as the here and now. And even if you go to... um, Flip over before we go to Matthew. I want to go to Acts, the first chapter of Acts. This is the last words of of Jesus on the earth after his resurrection. And he's about to ascend into heaven. And they ask him something. They've they've been through all of this. If you read the whole Gospel of Luke, go through the whole Gospel of Luke. And Acts is like Luke 2, book 2. So we just continue here. And you've gone through all this. You've seen, you've heard the teaching. And we have the benefit of that. We dwell in this teaching of the Gospels. So this, we sometimes look at the disciples, the apostles early there, before Acts, before the Spirit comes upon them. And we say, why are they so dumbfounded by all this stuff? We know all this. But remember, we've been sitting under teaching for a long time, focusing on these things. This was news to them. Yet they had been with Christ. They had seen the miracles. They had seen him die and see him rise again. And what do they ask? In Acts chapter 1, in verse 6, he says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) So they have gone all this time. And many have been saying, Lord, when are you going to restore your kingdom? When are you going to rise up, sit on the throne and rule over all of this right now? Rule over Rome, rule over the, the Jewish leadership, rule over the world. And they say, they've been through all this, and we stand amazed at what has happened. And then, and I'm sure they do too, but then they say, Lord, now are you going to establish your kingdom? And the Lord says, whoops, I flipped back. The Lord answers them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then he rises to heaven. So go back now to Matthew. We, we, at the beginning of Matthew, we have the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus has continued teaching. He's, with his, he's got his group of disciples with him. And in, he begins in chapter 13. And he begins to teach these great parables of the kingdom. We're going to read through them quickly and talk about a few things about them. What is the kingdom? So, obviously, the kingdom was not to be, in that moment, Jesus reigning over the earth physically like Caesar or the kings of old or like the kings of today, the rulers of today. That was not what Jesus meant to do in that time. But Jesus will reign like that. 
He will reign in the future. So what the kingdom is, is a kingdom that is yet to come. But that's not all that the kingdom is. The kingdom is a kingdom that is in the process of coming. It has already begun and it is already growing and it is yet to come. And these parables will tell us that. But for now, what you need to know as we read this is that the kingdom of God is something that is essentially spiritual. The kingdom of God is essentially a spiritual kingdom at this point in time. Now and when Jesus is preaching to his disciples. It has already begun, the kingdom, at that time. It is a kingdom between then and now and what is not yet. There is a kingdom in all these things, but is essentially spiritual. The kingdom is primarily something inside you and me. If it's not there, we're not a part of it. We're not a part of the kingdom. And so we think of the world and we think, well, how many people are Christians? Well, there's a lot of Christians in the world, but there's a whole lot of people that are not. So there is a kingdom in the world, but it is a kingdom that begins inside. And what does a kingdom mean? What does it mean to be in a kingdom? It's not a physical place. Don't think of boundaries. We tend to think that. I've walked into the kingdom. Now, we're in North America where there hasn't been a kingdom in a long time, but we think of citizenship. And we think, well, as a, as a citizen of the United States, I'm in my land. Now, if we did think of kingship, let's just go back a few hundred years and, and go to Europe where there were lots of kings. If I was in the kingdom of France, my king, the reason that's the kingdom of France is, one, there is a boundary because at that point, the king of this land will defend this land. But past that point, he's the king of that land. And I'm in a new land, and the king of this land reigns over this place. But Christ's kingdom is not about boundaries. Because wherever I am, Christ reigns in me. The kingdom is internal. It's spiritual. It will, at one point, reign over the whole world. And in one sense, God does reign over all things. But in a way in which we will joyfully submit as members of his kingdom. There's a difference there. Understand that? I can be ruled, and I, as I'm teaching this, I keep thinking of Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine, because I'm consuming way too much of it. It's very important what's going on in the world. It's scary times to see a superpower with nuclear arms at war with somebody who we are concerned about, and next to Europe, where there have been so many wars fought. We're concerned about it. How many of you have not looked at any news about Ukraine in the last two weeks or heard anything? You may be going, what's going on in Ukraine? It's a concern. So I've spent a lot of time. And so as I'm reading this, I keep thinking, okay, kingdoms, people in a kingdom, people conquering. Yes, these can be used as illustrations. We've seen it throughout history. We get used to things being in stasis, but the world is moving. But the Lord reigns. But what is the difference? The difference is, is when we're in the kingdom of God as Christians, we're glad to be in the kingdom of God. We're joyfully in it. And we'll see that in these parables. The kingdom means a saving reign, not God's providence over all things, which he does providentially reign over all things, but that's not the kingdom that Christ is referring to here. That is the essential assumption of the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. He rules what he created. But in this, we're talking about spiritual kingdom of salvation, a redemption, a saving reign, so that 
Where God's name is spoken, people will worship joyfully like the angels do in heaven where God reigns over a domain. And as I said, the kingdom of God is partially fulfilled now. It's to be fulfilled in the future. And any time you see here the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, it is the same thing. Okay, let's go. Chapter 13. We're going to blaze through some of this. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And the great crowds gathered about him so that they got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. At this point, the disciples once again were dumbfounded. They understand agriculture. They're in an agricultural society. Planting seeds for grain is very important. That's how they eat. So the Lord uses this illustration that people understand, they they recognize. He went out to sow, the sower. Now the good thing is, is in the Bible, sometimes we have parables and we seek to understand them. In this one, Jesus turns around and he explains it. He says, okay, this is what I meant. The disciples came and said to him, verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? And this is before he gives the explanation. This is very important. The purpose of parables. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. These are secrets to the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about what they are about, but in the big picture, these are about the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This little passage, before he gets the explanation, is packed and is hard to understand. But let's talk a little bit about it. So he's speaking to this group, which is more than his disciples, because he says, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, he gives them an answer. And his answer is, I speak to them in parables so that you'll understand about the kingdom of heaven. Not them. I speak to them in parables so they will not understand about the kingdom of heaven. But you will. So they're together. And then he explains why they will not understand. 
and he uses prophecy from Isaiah. So why are they, that would be the people here who will not understand us, many in that group are disciples as well. Some will be, some won't be, because we know that there are crowds following Jesus, but they will turn. There'll be very few. How many will be there at the end? Only a few, a handful at the cross. Um, Though some will come back, the, the 12 minus 1. But he says that there's a reason that they cannot hear. Their eyes have been closed. Their ears have been closed. They can barely hear. So we see that God is working here. There is a reason that some will hear and some will not. And that reason is that God has chose that this be. But they are not without fault. They have closed their ears. They have closed their eyes. And we are the same. When we come to God's Word, when we first begin to think and contemplate our existence and this world, and this world is crying to us that God is there and that we sin. How do we know that we sin? Well, we hold people accountable for things that we don't hold ourselves accountable for. That's one way that we condemn ourselves. Even as little children, we we do that. We don't always recognize it. But in our love of this world, and in these people's love of this world, in denial of Christ, they have shut their ears and closed their eyes. And the Lord says as punishment for that, they will not be opened unless the Lord opens them. And he says in verse 16, to go back, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. And I think this is a verse that we tend to read this on first reading and think, Because you see and you hear, you're blessed. I'm going to bless you. Let me restate that. Because you've seen and you've heard and you get it, therefore I will bless you. Well, that's not what the verse says. He said, you have been blessed to hear and to see. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. If you're mourning and you are forced to be meek, and if you are poor, you don't think, well, I made myself poor, therefore I will get blessed. It's not exactly what the Lord means. He's saying the poor, there is a blessing, and being poor is part of this blessing that's to come. There is a blessing in being meek, that you can be meek. Can you be meek without the Lord's help? Can you be blessed in being poor without the Lord's help? Can you be blessed in hungering and seeking for righteousness without the Lord's help? No, none is righteous. No, not one is what the Bible says. So there's nobody who comes and says, I'm righteous. And the Lord says, okay, I shall bless. The first blessing is that the Lord enables us to know him and through his spirit in knowing his word, To obtain a righteousness. Now, is that righteousness enough? It isn't. Because ultimately, the righteousness that counts is the righteousness of Christ. And that is the righteousness we have in having faith in Him. So, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So, as we hear, as we get to to see God's Word, to understand it, if God's Word is meaningful to you and you value it, I think it's natural, I don't think I have to say it, but maybe we have to remind ourselves, thank you, Lord, that this is the way it is. Not thank me. I shouldn't say, oh, how good it is 
that I myself figured this out. That doesn't bring glory to the Lord. What we say is, Lord, thank you for opening my eyes. Thank you for opening my ears. Thank you for preparing the soil of my heart. So let's go to 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. So Jesus is going to say this parable again, but now not as a parable. He's going to explain it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, there's the kingdom again, and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Let's we'll stop there. So he talks about three soils. He's going to talk about a fourth soil, but the first three soils are those who receive the word from the sower, who will go ahead and, spoiler, the sower is Christ, and we don't have to argue that because he says it himself. He is sowing the word. And here's a little bit different. If you're a farmer, what you're used to doing usually, or a gardener, is you till the soil, you break up the soil, you plant the seeds, you cover them, and then you, you water. And even if you're a dryland cotton farmer in West Texas this last year, you till the soil and you plant the seed and you let the water come, hopefully. But what they did then was a little bit different. And this was just the style they had there is they would sow seed, then they would break up the soil behind it with a plow. So they'd throw the seed out there, then they'd come behind and plow. So you'd see a field, it was fallow or it was uh, you know, cut from the last harvest, sow the seed of which there would already be seed from what was left from the plants, and then you'd till it again and you'd move on. So not the most efficient way, but this is how they did it. That's how it worked. We've definitely mechanized agriculture to be more efficient, but to understand this example, the seed is sown. So it's not real particular about where it falls. And he says some of this falls on ground that does not get plowed. Some of it falls on ground that cannot get plowed. And some of it throws on ground that didn't get plowed is full of weeds. And these three things begin to happen. The seed lands on the heart. It says it is sown in his heart. In verse 19, this is what was sown along the path. But it doesn't stay there. The evil one snatches it away. The devil comes and takes it away. And then some is sown on the rocky ground and it sprouts. And you know, if I've got, for years I've been trying to have a healthy fescue lawn in West Texas. It's really a fool's errand. But I have to keep planting seed in the places that die. And I've done it year after year, particularly where the postal worker likes to take the same path. And sometimes I want to put a sign that's like, just mix it up. <laughs> because they walk the same path and it all dies over the winter and I plant seed in the spring and it comes up. But you know what happens to the, the seed that I don't plant deep enough? May finishes up, June comes along and those little bitty fescue leaves, they shrivel up. And so I may feel like, oh, I've got a good crop of grass growing here. I've lost two-thirds of it. And by the August, 
If any of it's left, it's living. But if any of it didn't get deep enough that it stays moist, it just shrivels up and dies. It's really sad. If you've grown grass. What's that? Bermuda. Yeah. It's all shade is the problem. The Lord left out that, what happens when you sow in dark places. It's the front of our house, faces north, and we have a big tree. Nothing grows there. Still, I try. Um, But I've learned You've got to plant the seed deep enough. And and so this does not plant deep enough. It grows, but then it shrivels up. It has no root in himself. Endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution, this is verse 21, persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So this is a person, if we think about, let's think about the church. Let's think about Christians, people we know. It may be you. This may have been, you may look at your life and say, well, there was a time I would consider myself as the one grown in rocky soil in that we see people come to faith, make a profession of faith, and then fall away. And sometimes this, often this happens fairly quickly. If we think back to youth camp or some other event where you have your separation, you get rid of distractions, and you're on a spiritual high, or at least an emotional high, and you see people make a profession of faith, and then they're gone within a few months. We see this in youth constantly and have for decades in that there is a time when somebody will have an emotional response, a spiritual response, as far as we can tell, as far as they can tell. But there's no root. It isn't really growing in the soil. And what happens is they miss the object of faith, which is trusting in the Lord and the joy of our salvation in Him. And they're converted to the movement. They're converted to Christianity, but they're not converted to Christ. It is a superficial. What does superficial mean? On the face, above the face of something. So this, this seed is it's growing. It's not deep. It is not planted. It's surfacy. R.C. Sproul, a great quote, I thought is really good. He says, I constantly stress that no one is ever justified by a profession of faith. Rather, we are brought into a justified relationship with Christ by a possession of faith. This is difficult. And with children growing up in the church, this can also be difficult. But we've experienced this in our family. I experienced this growing up in that I trusted in my profession of faith, but not in, I did not have faith in Christ. I lived years trusting in my profession of faith, going back and saying, I wrote it in my Bible the day. I know I did it. I know I professed faith. Not at that moment professing faith, because what our profession could, should come from is the reality of what is, what we possess, which is Christ, if we possess faith. And what we see here is the person who does not possess faith, but has professed it. And they may be there a while. They may be there 20, 30 years. We see people walk away from the faith after many years. Ministers is very common these days. There's a, there is a movement of deconstruction. And you may have heard of this. It's become very popular. And it has become a, a net over many things, an umbrella term for people saying, I'm leaving the church because of this hurt or because my church failed in this way, or I was abused. I'm not saying that's not a good reason to do something in a church, or by a Christian, or by a parent who professed Christ. And they said, so, 
If that is faith, I want nothing to do with it. Well, that is a faith they see but do not have. And it may not be the same. It may be that that parent is likely, if there is abuse coming from someone in the church or family, that person is not possessing true faith either. Because those who possess true faith, what happens? They bear fruit. And if you've ever had a fruit tree or any plant, say you plant your beans in your garden, the beans that die don't bear any more beans. They shrivel up and die. But where are the ones that give you next year's seeds and all your beans to be cooked that year, or corn, or whatever, they're in the deep soil, which we'll talk about now. If we go back to, uh, and we talk about the thorns, let's talk about verse 22. There are some that's sown among thorns, and it grows up. Again, these are people that they profess, they do not possess, because when it comes around, what they have professed brings a burden on them. If you profess Christ... Well, the Sermon on the Mount tells us this is how you're supposed to live. And if you do not love Christ and you're not empowered by the Spirit, you will not joyfully live out the Sermon on the Mount. You will not forgive as you've been forgiven. Why do people forgive who are Christians? Because they want to, not because they have to. If you're, boy, there's a lot of people and things in my life that immediately pop into my head when I hear some teaching or read the Bible about forgiveness and that I'm... I have a duty to forgive, and I do. But if I just say, I'm forgiving you because I have to, do you think I really forgave you? In fact, I can think of certain things in my life that I thought, okay, well, I will someday because I'm supposed to, but I'm going to hold on to that for a while. Because if I just go ahead and check it off at that point, then I'm good. Well, the Lord softened my heart, and at one point I, in these things, look back and say, I want to forgive. And there's a joy in doing it. That's the forgiveness of a saved person. The forgiveness of the one who grows up in the thorns is that I have to. And if you have to forgive and you're really hurt and you can't let go of it, eventually you're going to say, forget this. Or if you want to lust, lust or sexual sin. And, and we see this today. It's so difficult in premarital counseling and even in the church to say, don't be living together before you get married. We, our pastors, our church, we will not marry somebody who is living together before they get married. You must separate. That's not to say that we were not, we're not forgiving and recognize that God redeems these situations. You can get married, but we ask you is to separate before, to live separately. And people think you're nuts for asking them to do that. And what they will say is, if that's how I'm supposed to live for Christ, No. But the saved person would recognize, I must live for Christ. And it's my joy to do that. So what does that person do? They grow up in the good soil. So, verse 23. As for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The first part of this sentence, let's read it again. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. I don't, how many diagrammed sentences in school? How many could do it now? I may have said this before. When I was in college, I was in a contracts class. A bunch of graduate students, about 20 students in there. And the professor who was very involved in state architectural 
practice laws and contracts said, I want you guys to come up here and diagram this sentence. Because in a contract, very important that the, me- the meaning of the sentence be understood because you're signing up for that meaning. And if you think it means this and they mean that, well, one of you wrong. Maybe both of you. You've got to understand it. So here's 20 people who all think they're the bee's knees. And we couldn't diagram sentence together. It'd been a year, it'd been a long time for most of us, but we eventually got close and then he came in there and fixed it for us. But if you look at this sentence, let's talk about how this sentence works. As for what was sown on good soil, who's sowing? The Lord. Who prepares the soil? Who made the soil? Who made the heart? The Lord. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. A lot of times people read this sentence and they think, okay, by understanding it and hearing it, I become good soil. And so it grows. It takes good soil for the, for the understandings. It's both. Both things are at work here. And he's the one who bears fruit. So when the fruit is being produced, some 30, 60, 100 it recognizes that this is good soil and a good word, and it is growing. There's, three, there's this soil, and then there's three types of things that happen on this soil. Some yield 30, some 60, some 100. In the Christian, in, the work, in our fruit, we bear different fruit. We may be a, a yield of 30 here, and later on a yield of 100. We may start at 100 and have periods of of lower bearing fruit. We still have sin among us that drags us down. We still have things that can join in the soil, which we're about to see in the next parable. But we will bear fruit. So how do you know if it's good soil? How do you know if it's authentic? There's fruit. Does it mean we're sinless? No. But how do you look at when these, all these have been sown and know if some are not going to last? Well, there will be no fruit. There may be growth at the beginning, but it will fall away. Then let's go to 24. He puts another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, master, do you not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The Lord will explain more of this in a second. But in the, if you were in ancient Israel, and you could do this now, I heard a great story. I think it was the University of Wisconsin. I'm not sure. They had a grad, whoever they were playing, I can't remember who it was, it was their rival. And the band, they're talking about fescue grass the other day. The band, as a prank, all had in their pockets created a little device that they could put seeds in their pockets of their pants and then they could at one point click it and the seeds fell out of their pants pocket as they were marching. 
So the Wisconsin band was marching at a W on the opponent's field, which was grass. And they marched in a W for a while, and they just kept knocking the seed out of their pocket. So what happens next fall is the green grass goes dormant. There's a giant W in the middle of the field of their opponent's stadium. And I'm sure they got out there with some Roundup the next day and started killing it, but... Great prank. But this is what would happen there. If you had an enemy, or they may come into your field and sow these weeds that look like wheat, but they're not. They're poisonous. You wouldn't eat them. You shouldn't eat them. And so the servants say, well, should we t- go and take them out? And he goes, no, you can't because they're in with the roots. Let's skip ahead. We may come back. But he explains this in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Christ is the Son of Man. So it is now firmly established that the sower is Christ. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. He set the scene here. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out His kingdom, all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. There are some folks who are able to somehow read the New Testament, or say they do, and say that Christ is not about teaching about hell. The church focuses too much on hell and punishment. Well, Jesus right here makes it very clear what's going to happen at the end times. He's going to gather up the lawbreakers, the bad seed, the devil's harvest and, and, or uh, sown, he's going to gather them up and throw them into the fiery furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the Son of Man directs his angels to do this. There is this idea that Jesus is so meek and mild that all of that should be ignored. That that's not his main goal. But he says the Son of Man commands this and the angels carry it out. This is an end times explanation In a simple paragraph. And out of this the righteous shine. So it refines what is there. And takes the wheat that has been added with the seed of the the weeds in there. And it refines it to just the pure wheat. The pure believers. The pure church. That is the the final uh, kingdom. But the kingdom is there now. Spread around the world are believers such as you and I, and these disciples, some of them, who are the first outpost of the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom that will at some point be the kingdom in heaven and earth. Now, carry on to verse 44. This will be the last two we focus on. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We've had these longer parables that talk about how the kingdom begins and how it functions and how there are things in the kingdom that are not really part of the kingdom. And they will be known and they will be destroyed. But for now they stay. The Lord doesn't say now take the tares, the weeds, out of the world, out of the church. So if if we apply this to the world, well, Christians are in the world and the church is composed of Christians in the world and of tares. In our church, in every church, this morning in the auditorium and I guess in this room and others, there are weeds. There are those who were sown by the devil. There are those who are not sown by the sower, the Lord. Now, perhaps the Lord has sown the seed and it is about to grow in that heart. And I pray and let's continue to spread the word that it does. But we have to recognize that within every church, and and we see this teaching in other places in the New Testament, there are weeds, tares, your, your translation may say. We preach the gospel to our church so that we remember what God has done. And we also preach all of Scripture. So the church is for the believers to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to grow up strong and to bear fruit. But it is also evangelistic. But that's not our primary role on Sundays is to reach the lost. We're here. The church exists for the kingdom. But there's always lost here. So our pastor, Brother Barry, the other pastors here, we, we share with people, we plead with people, repent of your sin, recognize your need, recognize your sin, repent, come to Christ. But if that's all the church did, we would, we'd be preaching to the tares and leaving the wheat malnourished. Uh, you have to grow in your knowledge of the word. So both things are done. But primarily, uh, the weeds cause problems in the church. They, they get in there with the roots and they can cause a lot of problems. And we see that today among churches around the country. And it breaks my heart. Um, if you're not following Ukraine too closely, you can start to see some other things going on in our nation among churches. Particularly in the last few years, it's always been this way. Let's not get a, let's not get a uh, rose-colored glasses about the way the church used to be in America or the way it was. If you go back to the 19th century, there were lots of lost people in churches. That's when liberal theology about saying the Bible isn't true started was well over 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And it's grown. The weeds have grown and grown and choked out. But now we get to these two short parables. They're very short compared to the the previous two. The field. The law was in Israel that if you found something in your field, it was yours. So you didn't have banks You didn't have finance system like we have. If you had something of great value, you had to keep it and you would hide it. Say you're being attacked. Wars were coming through all the time. What's a good thing to do? Well, put it in a pot and bury it. Not a treasure chest. That would rot. Or you probably didn't want to make it. I guess you could form all your treasure into gold and then put everything else in it. No, you, you put it in a clay pot because who would expect anything to be in a clay pot? You'd bury it. And... If you found that in your field, it was yours. So this person finds this in a field, but it's not his field. 
And he buys it. So some people look at this and say, well, isn't this a little sketchy? Isn't this like somebody coming to your house and saying, I'd love to buy your property or your minerals. They're worthless. Now, here, I'll give you just a little. No, and, and we shouldn't get, see, lose the, the forest for the trees. What the Lord is saying is that the kingdom of God is so valuable that this man gave up everything. He saw it, he found it, and knew in a instant, I must have it. And it says, and this is very important, we'll close on this. It says in verse, well, it's all in verse 44, the second half. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has found, all that he has, and buys that field. Now, we can't buy the kingdom of heaven. It is a gift. It is free. It is bought at a great price of Christ's life. But it is of... It doesn't make it worthless. It's worth more than we could ever pay. If it was available to buy, it's so valuable, we would have to have everything. Well, only the Lord has everything, and He, in His Son, gave it away. So, that is a free gift to us, but it is worth everything. And do we think that? Do we joyfully look at the kingdom, that spiritual kingdom that's beginning in us, that the Lord is growing in the church and in the world? And eventually, in the universe, it will rule. Do we, do we see joy in that? Are you joyful that you're a Christian? Are you joyful that you're part of a church? Is it the one thing, if you had to give away everything, everything would easily be given away, except this one thing. I would never give this away because it's my hope and my joy. I hope you feel that way about the Lord, about your faith, about His promises. And so as we go in the service now, as we sing... As we hear his word, recognize the value. The kingdom is being built. The Lord explained, I'm building this kingdom not the way you expect. Even after they heard these things, they come back and say, okay, Lord, you can do it now. You don't know how, but I'll tell you this much. I'm building my kingdom like this, like these parables, and it is worth so much. And before you know it, he has, one more, he has a couple more parables. One is about the yeast, and he says, We're gonna, it's going to grow. And before you know it, it will be everywhere. We look and we say, well, it doesn't seem like it's, the Lord's not done. Let's trust him. Let's pray. We'll go. Father God, we thank you that you have come to reign in our hearts, Lord. Lord, reign in us uh, this very moment. Reign over our distractions. Reign over our fears. Reign over our doubts. Uh, reign over our, um, our pains, physical emotional. Lord, we know that you've given us much and we have great joy in this world in the gifts and blessings you bring. But Lord, let us see yourself as the greatest blessing and our greatest joy and strive to want that more than anything else in this world because you've given it to us. Lord, help us to glorify you in all that we do. And as we go into service now, prepare our hearts for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.